You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The land is not just ancient, but antique. And while many of its artifacts end up as the possessions of distant museums, they may yet be capable of overpowering their audiences. Percy Bysshe Shelley's Ozymandias is traditionally taken as an exploration of hubris and of the obliviating effect of time on power and its pretensions. But the poem also speaks to the power of art to preserve and how this is accomplished by a hermeneutic collaboration between artist, audience, and subject matter. If there is something alive in the passions reproduced within an artist's inanimate medium, then our creative powers may ultimately not belong to us. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. So Aaron, I think this is a really appropriate poem to do after Alien. Yeah. Because I probably have a much looser association here. The poem is actually quoted in Alien Covenant, I found out when looking at trivia. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, there's a segue for us from Alien to Ozymandias. Well, isn't this also inscribed at the foot of the uh, space jockey or that's a joke. I, just, <laughs> I know that it's not. <laughs> the gears were processing that because obviously it's impossible for that to be <laughs> You know, those aliens are like really big Shelley fans. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's Ridley Scott trying to uh, <clears throat> be the king of kings there with that massive space jockey. <laughs> that's a good Cecil B. DeMille plug right there. Yeah. Yeah. Another TV show or film or whatever that, that references this is Breaking Bad, right? Because right. when I talk about it with my students, they're like, oh, this is the Breaking Bad poem, which is awesome. That thrills me that they both have seen Breaking Bad and have familiarity with this poem because of Breaking Bad. But I feel, I feel like this gets referenced all the time. I don't know. It, are there other places where it appears besides Alien, Breaking Bad? I don't know, but it's uh, this idea will be part of our conversation today to the extent to which the poem itself is a monument and self-referential, right, in its aspiration to become a monument. Mm. The, the parallel between the artist and the and Ramses too, a.k.a. Ozymandias, much cooler name. Totally. I'm sure it's appeared in many places, and I'm sure it's the most well-known of Shelley's poems, uh, or the most read, right? There's Prometheus Unbound... I had the misfortune of reading that entire thing. Yeah. You know, I tried to look at <laughs> read uh, some other Shelley poems as preparation for this. I can't say he's a poet that generally grabs me and, and he's a very, what's the word for it? Excited. Yeah, that's. <laughs> Excited guy. This, this poem, <laughs> it, it seems to kind of depart from his usual style in a way. Which I love. Shelley is, full disclosure, he's, he's by far my least favorite of the hmm. six major English romantic poets. Ode to the West Wind was frequently parodied in my house growing up. I fall upon the thorns <laughs> of life. I bleed. We'd say that whenever we like something bad happened. Um, <laughs> that was very minor. Oh no, we ran out of coffee. Yeah. Dinner's late again. <laughs> I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. Yeah. So he was always like the object of, of our scorn. My mom and I, um, she also hated hated Shelley. So, I mean, he did have a very tragic life, but it, 
it's kind of self-imposed. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> Not quite up to the Keats uh, standard of tragedy. Right. He he tried pretty hard to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Beginning with being very publicly an atheist in school and publishing a tract and sending it to all the professors and bishops, pissing everyone off and and ending with falling out of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, when I was at Oxford, it's funny because there's a whole like monument to him at Oxford now, which is mm. hilarious considering what happened to him there. They've reclaimed him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but this, you know, this is a wonderful poem. Should we just get started and just read it and then talk about it? Or should we say anything more? It's an occasional poem in a way. Should we say a little bit more about the background? Sure. So the the poem began as a competition in, between him and his friend Horace Smith, right? Mm-hmm. They tasked themselves with writing a sonnet on the same topic, and I think it was inspired by a visit to the British Museum, right? Mm -hmm. And the sculpture is, you know, a fragment of a statue of Ramses II that had been taken out of Egypt. And at this, at this time, there are lots of antiquities, right, flowing out of Egypt because of Napoleon's invasion, basically, and, and plundering of all those ruins and artifacts. So there's quite a, a bit of Egyptian stuff arriving at the museum. And I think the statue at the museum was a uh, impetus for this. And then they found that Diodorus little fragment, the Roman historian, yeah. right? So Diodorus described this inscription on a statue, which read, King of Kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. Which is like pretty awesome <laughs> inscription. So I think that directly inspired both sonnets that came out of this, one of which has a much more involved title than Shelley's Ozymandias. <laughs> the title yeah. is hilarious of the other one. I don't know if we should say it now or talk about yeah. it later. Okay, so the, so the title of Smith's poem is... On a stupendous leg of granite discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt with the inscription inserted below. Wow. I got to say that even I know that's a bad title. <laughs> well, he wins the, the competition for title length. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's what it's all about. It's a big, big title. So yeah, so I think um, Ozymandias is the Greek name for, for Ramses too. So the poets connected the statue and the account from Diodorus and then went from there. The competition was on, but it's not really much of a competition in the end. Maybe maybe we'll get a chance to look at Smith's poem a little bit, but sure, yeah, it's just not even close. Shall we read the poem and then I, you can read it and then we can talk a little bit about the the structure and rhyme scheme and then and then move sure. on to our Let's do it. analysis. Okay, go for it. Okay, I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand. Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Very nice. So the, the structure of this, am I right to say it combines two types of sonic, the Petrarchan and the Shakespearean? Oh yeah, I guess it, yeah, I guess it does. So the rhyme scheme is more Shakespearean, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's divided into a octave and a sestant. Mm-hmm. It's A-B-A-B-A, C-D-C-E, 
D E F E F. So it's a weird. It's a little variation. You know, it's a, it's a regular. Mm-hmm. I guess it still qualifies as a as a sonnet. Oh, there are much much crazier sonnets than this. <laughs> okay. But I, I figured. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing that that strikes me first always when I read it, and it always surprises me, is that almost the entire poem is a quote, which is right bizarre. So there's, there's this bizarre distancing effect that Shelley's using where the I that begins the poem just completely drops away. And the entire thing is this, this quote of this traveler. So it, it's sort of doubly refracted right. for a poem that begins with the I it's extremely impersonal. And it's this traveler's account of the sculpture, you know, coming upon it in the sand. And then there's also the quote within the quote of the traveler reciting the inscription. It's very strange. It creates this sense of mediation on the one hand. So you get a a kind of further insulation between the audience and the poet here by interposing someone else. And then there's always the question of the reliability. If you interpose a persona narrator, but the question of the reliability, the narrator always arises. And that's kind of apt in this case because we're going to also take this as a commentary on on art and the art artist and the status of representation which we'll get to and we can think of the travel in various ways so we're we're thinking here about source material and reliability and i think people were um it was kind of controversial whether right diodorus himself could be relied on mm. whether this account was actually accurate or his accounts were actually accurate so who's the traveler right is it diodorus are we meeting him metaphorically there are also a lot of people writing travelogues at the time, you know, just as, as all the antiquities were coming back, people were, were visiting and writing about Egypt. And so there's the question of the reliability of those accounts. We could think of the narrator as someone in the past meeting Diodorus, or we could think of Diodorus as in a way as a time traveler, which is apt in the sense that these monuments themselves sort of become time travelers that speak to us through time. Hmm. So there's a lot of ambiguities just in this use of a traveler here. And we'll, we'll see that's repeated throughout the poem. A lot of interesting pregnant ambiguities so that, that work very well in the poem. The word antique. <laughs> really well, yeah, let's. I think is a great word. Right. Right. Not ancient. Yeah. So I just wanted to dive right in and call our attention. I mean, that's the word that grabs your eye in the first line, an antique land. Like you say, it's a place where a lot of antiquities are coming out of. Um, but there's also this idea that the land itself is, is antiqued or I don't know. What do we want to say about that? The things that come out of, out of Egypt are antiquities and um, maybe even, and you know, well, think the sorts of things that will end up in antique stores and end up in people's the, the living rooms of tourists, ultimately, if, if not museums. Mm-hmm. So it recasts the land as something that is for the conqueror, for the exploiter, in this case, Napoleon, right, and Britain. So we're, we're immediately confronted with an irony, which is that Ramsey's monument is supposed to in a way, make him the the big guy. He'd sort of to help him trans temporarily subject others. Right? It's not it's not good enough that he's king of kings. He's got to do that across time by by way of the, of his monuments. In this case, we get a reversal. Right? The monuments simply become something to be enjoyed in a museum, something to be plundered, and and so on. So that's that's just a the things you can do with one word. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I love that. As a, a whole civilization or country is now being a, a place of 
plunder, which is allowed because of the fact that it's, you know, its glory days are past, right? So those empires currently at the height of their powers can come in and make of this anti-gland, you know, what they want. But obviously contained within the poem, I think, as you're suggesting, is this idea that those civilizations currently at the height of their powers will also then become antique lands that the dominant force can come in and take their knickknacks from. You know, naturally, we're gonna, we can ask the same question of the work of art. Does the work of art subject the audience in a way as I think Ramses imagines his monuments subjecting future peoples? Or is the, does the audience subject the work of art, right? Curate it, take it, put it in a museum, mm. make the artist their servant, they, you work for me, that sort of thing. And then just to say once again that we are, I think the mediation of the, the traveler raises the question of accuracy, which is it's that old platonic accusation. Mm-hmm. Art is a lie. Artists are making things up or even representation per se keeps us at a, at a distance from reality. It's not something to be valued or favored and it can even have a bad influence on us. It can be a way of sort of virally spreading poor character that's Plato's accusation. Aristotle responds with the concept of catharsis, a different concept of identification that might not be so corrupting to us. So I think we can, you know, we can introduce all those those ideas here that, that I think do pay off later. Sure. Well, I think that gets us to the two vast and trunkless legs of stone, right? Because right away we have this heroic scale of the body, right? Something that's that's literally blown out of proportion. Or it's in proportion, but it's way blown up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good, yeah. So I think it's supposed to be reminiscent maybe of like the Colossus of Rhodes, keeping that in mind. Yeah, yeah, I think that's very good because this word, we're going to be confronted later on in the poem with two ideas that are opposed to each other. One is this idea that the statue mocks, and the other is that it well reads. Mm-hmm. That it's it reads something well. It's an accurate representation. Or the other, on the other hand, it mocks. Which there's a double entendre there. You know, mock isn't simply an imitate. Simply is engaged in representation or mimesis. But on the other hand, might mean make fun of, and in this case, possibly by caricaturing, possibly by distorting. So that the grandiosity of the of Ramses, as you're pointing out here can, can be related to a kind of lack of accuracy or misrepresentation or or even caricature and and mockery so inadvertent self-caricature simply by virtue of his um you know his arrogance and his his aspirations right and he's been and he's been cut off um we have these great pairings of descriptors i think that happen throughout the poem so we have famously the last two pairs the lone and level and the boundless and bare mm. um, but here we have va- vast and trunkless and as you suggest like the hand that mocked the heart that fed so we have these pairings of things which i, I think are kind of opposed to each other so mm. the idea that that the legs can be vast is sort of ironically cut off at the knees or a little <laughs> a little yeah. higher up that it's also trunkless so it's a kind of absurdity an absurdity which is obviously highlighted in the title of the Horace Smith poem that that if you're just going to focus on these two legs right. it kind of becomes unintentionally hilarious that here that it's it's extremely profound and um, so this is something that I didn't actually pick up on this this contrast you're highlighting between the vastness of the legs and the and their trunklessness which 
we could see that as the grandiosity itself producing a kind of fragility or or weakness right with mm-hmm. the legs representing those yeah, the aspiration to dominate or to walk over or to bestride the narrow world but it's that size right which makes the monument so uh ultimately so vulnerable to time and to the elements if, if someone were injured for instance <laughs> Right, they lost their legs in an accident. We wouldn't look at the legs and say, "Oh, those legs are trunkless." <laughs> right. Look at the trunk and say, "Oh, those, that trunk is legless." So it's an interesting visual inversion of injury, I think. So the legs, presumably, they carry your body around. They carry your your message, your your goods, your attempts to conquer. And the word trunkless is always so strange because whenever I, I would show this to my students, they would at first think that whatever was being described was an elephant. <laughs> They're not used to the idea of a trunk as a torso, but it called my attention to the fact that a trunk is is also what you might carries stuff around in, right? Like you're, mm. you're a, a trunk, like a traveling trunk mm. um, where you might take, if you're Shelly, uh, you know, to go spend some time in, in Egypt or Greece or wherever you might go if you're Shelly. So there's an idea of storage and carrying across one's message, which is inherent in a conquering country, right? So that I think is, is great in this word trunkless, even if it does make us think of Dumbo. I have one more association, which is probably loose and unfounded, but the the word bootless in a Shakespearean sonnet, mm. sonnet 29. That's great. It's the kind of thing that can unconsciously influence a poet in an unconscious way. If you're writing a sonnet and you've read lots of sonnets here, it's uh, <laughs> trunkless instead of, instead of bootless with the boots intact, so to speak. Mm, that's nice. Yeah. So near these, these legs of stone, we have this shattered visage half sunk in the sand and from what we can tell of these descriptors it's just the the lower half of the face right i'm thinking of that famous fragment and sort of like a black granite of just the lower lips of a monumental sculpture do you know what i'm talking about i always think of that little that not little but that large lip fragment the egyptian sphinx no not the sphinx sphinx we get we have the full head so what I'm thinking of is actually in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it's a fragment of a, of a queen's face in yellow jasper. Yeah, so it's the lower half of her face. Yeah, because I think that's really all we get. I mean, that's what I imagine. Do, do you see a, a whole face, but just with a crack in it? Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that's the, way I, the way I see it. And now I'm seeing half sunk, a shattered visage lies. So, it's, so now I'm wondering if half the, half the head, only half the head is above the sand or if the... I guess it could be like upside down in the, in the sand. So we're only getting... Because we get these three incredible descriptors, all of which are in reference to the mouth. Yeah, it could be half buried and upside down and shattered to boot. That's very interesting. But I like to think of it as, yeah, just the bottom half of the face and the chin so <laughs> somewhat sunk in the in the sand. That's my mental image. I have trouble seeing a sneer with just the, the bottom of the face. But yeah, I get that. That's a more dramatic reading in a way. Well, that's what I, whenever I do, a, and I actually, in looking up this poem online, I saw a bunch of like really silly illustrations of what this is. And it shows a full head sunk in the sand next to two legs. But whenever I would kind of draw it out for students, I would just show like the bottom half of a face and then two legs. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at some of the, and I have seen these pictures before. 
which had probably influenced my the way I've imagined the poem. You know, the the sort of illustrations of yeah, the poem. Yeah, illustrations of the poem. Yes, I've I've seen many. I like this idea that all we get is the mouth. I mean, I think that there's a a delicious irony to that. You know, we get the legs that can't go anywhere and that aren't carrying anything. They're carrying a load, and we get the mouth that speaks to us through the inscription, but that is disembodied. He can sneer and he can say something very um, arrogant, mm-hmm. let's say, but he can't see. Right. So he can't see the irony his own words are creating, perhaps, or smell the irony. <laughs> right, right. The seeing or smelling, yeah. Yeah, so we have the following descriptors for this visage. So half sunk, and then we have whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. So I have that as three descriptions of the same thing. Frown, wrinkled lip, sneer of cold command, which then makes me wonder, like, why give three? If you have a whole face, why give three descriptors for the lips? I mean, it could be just a preoccupation with the lips, certainly. But I just I find all these three things so interesting because they, it's, it seems to grow. It's frowning. It has a wrinkled lip and then it becomes it's, it's sneering. It seems um, slightly different, maybe. With each, but it, it kind of shows this multiplicity of possible angles on distaste that <laughs> seem to be represented here slightly, you know, shades slightly different from each other. Yeah, I mean, being sneering and let's say being caught up in will to power. If we're Plato, we, we think that, well, that's a version of unhappiness and hence the frown. But the person in that moment, of course, cold command just just is what is happiness to them. So a sneer in a way, if it's also a frown, betrays itself. And it's telling that we, you know, if you're right and we only see half the face or at, very, at the very least we're focused on half the face, that's very telling that that's all that's required to give us that emotion. It's incomplete, it's not whole, and maybe even there's something deformed about it. And in a way, it's also more suitable to the medium than other emotions, right? This is something in cold stone, Mm -hmm. something frozen, something rigid. And, you know, in in any statue, we're kind of, we, we catch ourselves and we characterize it personifying it, right? To say that the statue is frowning, right, is is in a way an an inaccuracy. The statue can't frown. The frowning is represented in the statue. Mm -hmm. The same thing with stand in the desert, by the way. Stand is polyvalent. Standing is something human does. You could say a statue is standing in the sense that it represents human standing, but you could also say a statue stands in the sense that it's just a standing structure. And this is arguably not a standing structure. Right. Yeah. So the question of accuracy that shows up at the beginning of the poem when you interpolate a, a traveler and then ultimately... There's a lot of interpolations. There's us, the audience, in our interpretation. There's the poet. There's the text. There's the traveler. There's the sculptor. There's Ramsey's own self-representations and so on, right? We get Mm -hmm. the whole, the endless sort of number of displacements. The way that shows up in a a work of art is just the sense in which the, the representation is not the real thing. And we wonder whether to be bothered by that. So beyond, you know, the technicalities of did, was Diodorus, is that a real historical account? Beyond those sorts of technicalities, there's always the question of whether art can represent the truth. If so, and, and maybe it is, you know, as, as Keats thought, you know, beauty is truth so that we can circumvent all questions of factual accuracy as we saw with the urn. But in part, that's the question that's 
raised here and, and kind of gets us to the next line where he, you know, he attributes a kind of accuracy to the sculptor. Am, am I right to think that the traveler who's describing this is sort of vacillating between two interpretations? It's like he's saying it's a frown and then he's looking closer. Well, what is it? Well, it's just a wrinkled lip. But then from that, again, he gets a different interpretation, which is a sneer of cold command. So he's first reading it as a frown and he's sort of looking closely at the lips and seeing that they're wrinkled and then sort of deciding that it's less a frown and more a sneer. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a possibility, which didn't occur to me because I, I read the traveler in a way as very matter of fact in a sense until we get to the sort of arresting turn in the poem, nothing beside remains. Well, the traveler, I, I think, is doing a lot of interpretive work here that's sort of half sunk in the poem, if you will, like so a lot of it is subterranean, <laughs> you know, and yeah. so, so he goes on to say, you know, that this, this frown, this sneer show that its sculptor accurately portrayed the subject, right? But of course he has no way of knowing if this is an accurate portrayal. So that also is a value judgment. So I think that the traveler is doing a lot of op-ed <laughs> interpretation of this. Uh, you yeah, know. that's very good. Yeah. I actually did have that in my notes. Um, that is the first point where we come to question, I think, the traveler is sort of just a matter of fact teller of a tale because mm -hmm. yes, tell that its sculptor well those passions read. How could the traveler possibly know? Right. And I love that tone. Too. It's a very flat tone. You know, it's, a, it's, um, it's an even tone with yeah, which he's presenting exactly. this. So it is presented as a historical account. But as we know with, I mean, I think this is true for Herodotus, Thucydides, right? They weren't present for pretty much anything that they were describing, right? They were, they were just getting secondhand accounts, yeah. but speaking in an authoritative way <laughs> about those secondhand accounts. Yeah, so we have this blank sort of AP <laughs> description of, of facts without pausing to realize, oh, he's actually, he's doing a lot of interpretive work here. Yeah. So he's saying that this, this frown or sneer, we can argue, as we've already said, if those two things are distinct from each other, that this expression on the, in the mouth tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. So the sculptor read the passions of his subject accurately and uh, transmuted them into his his portrayal so passions i think is the word that stops me here it seems to in a way be sort of the opposite of this cold command which is dispassionate and obviously if we think of like passion as being a kind of love or obsession it's also negated by the idea of the frown or or even a sneer yeah. Well, I, I wanted to say one more thing about accuracy, which is that the question of whether the sculptor can well read these passions. On the one hand, it seems impossible for the traveler to know whether this can be a good reading of the actual visage, right? What was, what was the sort of the actual kind of expression that Ramses had or would have maybe habitually on his face. But Unless we think that there's another concept of reading, let's say, or interpretation at work, which is just to say that the artist really knows how to represent arrogance or whatever you want to call it accurately. So the artist becomes a good representer of the passions, regardless of who Ramses to really was. Right. Or, or even that just that it's done beautifully. So that's the third question. So there's the factual accuracy. There's trueness to a general character type and then there's just the idea of doing something very skillfully and 
beautifully and, and two and three naturally are connected. I like that, that third idea that if you just portray uh, something with beauty, that that creates its own accuracy. I like that a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's on truth, yeah. So in this case, the passions, I think part of what's interesting here is, you know, as you pointed out, the conflict between this word passion and what's come before. Does cold command really count as passion? I'm calling it arrogance and, and will to power, but maybe we can think of some other words. But are th those sorts of things, passions, they seem in a way dead, right? They seem more, the stone seems actually very appropriate for them, or maybe the passions are, are they're, they're sort of buried in, in some sense. But the other thing is, well, those passions, Red, there's really no antecedent to that directly. There's what's on the face, a face that's shattered. We're even meant to infer the antecedent here. And of course, that doubling of passions and coldness is contained within that following line, right? They yet survive, but they're lifeless. So there's that same dichotomy in the following line. So... And they're stamped on these lifeless things. So there's a kind of a critique of the artist's ability in that, I think, that he's, you know, oftentimes in statues of any great figure, there's usually some sort of identifying characteristic that is mm. their their signature, their trademark. Akhenaten obviously had, had a, you know, a different artistic whole movement behind him, but he's always portrayed as being that he has that kind of rounded belly. You know, you could always tell Akhenaten by his little his little pot belly. And there are lots of other sort of characteristics. So there's almost this idea of that if you want to portray Marcus Aurelius or or Ramses II or whoever, that you might stamp him with the recognizable characteristics of his, you know, what he's most known for. I don't know if that is maybe involved here. I mean, I think it's part of it. But this idea that we have this stamp of a characteristic on what? What is, what is the stamp here and what is the lifeless thing. So it seems like the, the passions are stamped on. So the passions are alive, but the lifeless things are what the pieces of stone. It's very strange when you tear it apart, it starts to crumble, so to speak. So let me pause here for a moment to talk about the sponsor of today's episode, BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. As someone who has found therapy to be really useful at different points in my life, I believe strongly that it can be an essential tool for growth and self-reflection. So if there's a persistent problem you're having, maybe something standing in the way of your happiness or your goals, BetterHelp is a great and convenient online resource. So you don't have to go into a therapist's office and you can access BetterHelp from anywhere in the world. When you go to their website, BetterHelp will help you figure out what your needs are. They have counselors who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, sleep, relationships, and many more. And they'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can start communicating with in 48 hours or less. You can message your therapist anytime and schedule weekly phone or video sessions that are totally secure and it's all online. And best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than most offline counseling. And as a subtext listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash subtext. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash subtext. And now back to the show. Yeah, so this is kind of built into mimesis. It's it's a problem inherent in representation and mimesis, which is that the medium of representation is naturally lifeless in a sense. It's naturally cut off in some way from the real thing. And even when we talk about our 
passions, right? So if we have a conversation and I say I was scared yesterday or I was angry yesterday, that's not the same thing as re-experiencing it. I might mm-hmm. have some of that experience again in the telling of it, but even to use words, even to use concepts, even to represent is to take me away from the reality of the actual experience, except that in the case of a work of art, I can be induced to some extent. Now, I don't know if I can be induced with the feeling of arrogance by looking at a sculpture like this, right? I can't become the sneering cold commander necessarily. Maybe I do a little bit through identification, Mm -hmm. but there is some ability here to sort of virally infect me with the passion in question, which is really important because that is the thing that actually survives with art. The sculpture could even disappear entirely, but it could create a kind of culture, right? The cultural effect of these monuments, even if a particular monument doesn't survive, could be something felt, right? The culture of Egypt is part of our present and its passions are to some extent our passions. Maybe that's just because we're human, but also maybe there's something distinctively Egyptian, right? Left over in them. It's almost like DNA or a virus in the way that this is the thing that survives from generation to generation or the mimetic character of culture. Even if particular works of art don't survive, it's, it's something at the level of passion that gets propagated. And yet there's something highly manufactured about that word stamped at the same time, like an assembly line. This has the character of Egypt on it, TM with a circle around it. (laughs) I think this is important. And this is what you were getting at before. I mean, I think this gets us to the relationship between red and mock, which is to say that if we're making something true to life in the sense that we are trying to accurately represent not the person, but a particular frame of mind, a particular passion, or maybe arrogance, then the tendency is towards caricature, right? The tendency is towards exaggeration because we have to produce an effect in the audience and we have to make it recognizable. And in reality, people are very complicated and it's tough to communicate that complexity. Mm -hmm. So that's the sense in which trueness requires mockery in a way. And that's one or that's one take on mockery in this. It's dangerous. And I think authors worry about this. And I think, you know, even in our last recording on Bartleby, the concept of characterlessness is in part a reflection on this problem, a reflection on the extent to which the creation of character is fraught with conflict and inaccuracy mm-hmm. or in on a personal level in something like proof rock, right? Are we pigeonholing someone? Are we leaving leaving them wriggling on a pin? It reminds me of my experience as a reporter, an animal healthcare reporter, strangely enough, in which I, I wrote this glowing profile of someone, this police officer who started the first animal cruelty department within a police force. And she was very unhappy with my glowing portrait because I told a story. I created a narrative and I wasn't trying to be overly... Dramatic. I was trying to highlight, I thought, what were some really true, interestingly dramatic facts in the story, like the fact that she grew up next to an animal hoarder who she later had mm. to arrest. And she saw those things as caricatures and as misrepresentations of the subtleties of what was going on. And I realized she was right. So that just in the process of trying to tell a coherent story, I was engaged in misrepresentation. So once again, we confront the question of whether 
aesthetic representation or, or even storytelling, even if it's reporting, is naturally misleading and misleading in its attempt to either be beautiful or in its attempt to, even in its attempt to be true in some sense, right? If it's going to be, if we're attempting to be true to character or to passion by making it something that can have a suitable effect on the audience. Well, yeah. In, in its attempt to get itself read. Yeah. Right. What reader would go to a newspaper and just want to hear the driest possible recounting of, exactly, uh, you know, just the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I guess it calls all of news reporting into question because all of news reporting is an, is an attempt to, you know, narrativize and storytell expounding upon actual fact. But it also is a medium that's reliant upon an audience, just like the arts are reliant upon an audience. And if it's not compelling, then who's going to want to um, ingest it? Yeah, and compelling is a good word and hints at how deep this problem gets because we do tend to conflate aesthetics and truth, even truth and metaphor, right? So in Much Ado About Nothing, we talked about the extent to which metaphor could be used as an element in reasoning to make an accusation seem true. You know, they're so stained with blood that they could make the entire sea red or something like that. Um, and the use of metaphor and wit, right? So a battle of wits involves the use of metaphors in a way that are convicting of the other person in the sense of, you know, convicting them of being an oaf or stupid or silly, partly because they lose the battle of wits at that moment, but also just because the representation is so clever that it makes it seem like it must be true. So one might argue, as Nietzsche did, that all language in a way is metaphor. So we are confronted with that platonic problem of the inherent inaccuracy in representation, but we gravitate towards these. So for instance, to something like metaphor as a kind of truth teller or as an indicator of truth for better or for worse. So mm -hmm. it, it may be actually that there are ways in which it actually is a good indicator of a certain kind of truth. I was just writing about this for my theory of poetry class and my professor was talking about how metaphor, um, you tell the truth up to a certain point. It's like trying to get to a place where you have to, you can only drive so far and then you have to get out and, and walk on foot to hmm. the rest of the way to your destination. That metaphor is doing that, <laughs> that walking. But that there's also the false kind of metaphor, she said, in which you drive up and then in the last couple seconds you switch to walking and make it look like you walked the whole way. <laughs> yeah, sort of a performative yeah. element of, of metaphor, which is a, a sort of emptier yeah. wit in a way. Um, you're putting me in mind of that. There's always the problem of how far you can extend the metaphor. How how long does the analogy hold, or between what elements of the right. the vehicle and the um, what's the other one? Tenor. Yeah. Uh, how many isomorphisms are there between the two structures? I mean, you see this all the all the time in political reasoning on Twitter, where people create a metaphor or an analogy between two things. And so they, you know, they note one commonality and then they infer that some other commonality must hold when it obviously doesn't. <laughs> right. Just bad reasoning, you know. I did a whole segment with my students once on Twitter and logical fallacies. And they, <laughs> right. they realized that every single tweet they had ever read was a logical fallacy. Right. But it's, you know, it's emotionally very, very satisfying. So Right. So passions well-read or something mocked? 
The other thing I think about the stamped on these lifeless things, is this a funerary monument? You know, that's interesting. I, I would take this to be a statue erected to someone at the height of his powers, right? I think you're right. I think I think of that because, you know, of Egypt's sort of obsession with what are basically grand tombs and, you know, including the, the pyramids, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially huge tombs and massive funerary monuments and the sense in which... Uh, even though in this case, it's not specifically that, that sort of irony of trying to become immortal through something dead or even become immortal through one's tombstone, essentially. Right. <laughs> which you could read any sculpture or monument as, as being that. Well, and I think the ways in which Egyptians took that literally by being buried with objects that were meant to sustain them in the afterlife too is, I mean, it takes, <laughs> right. it takes on a kind of a deadly seriousness when you're another um, another misuse of metaphor yeah right right (laughs) yeah a literalizing element we've already glanced at it but it takes us to the most i think by far the most difficult line of the poem and a line that i still struggle to understand (laughs) grammatically to what it refers the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed so do you take that to be the hand of the sculptor the hand of the statue of of ozymandias of both who's them what heart is feeding whom it's uh very confusing i think yeah i have to admit it took me a while to figure out this line and one of the readings that you've mentioned i don't it just didn't even occur to me so the, the way i ended up taking this is that it's the hand of the sculptor who mocks the passions where mock again is ambiguous between just represents those passions on the face and perhaps exaggerates or caricatures them or beyond that just the very circumstantially mocks them by representing arrogance in a medium that is is inevitably going to fracture and and decay and and be subject to the ravages of time and then the heart that fed i take to be ramsey's heart feeding those passions Hmm. okay what's your other well i would say that that's not the most intuitive first reading Am I am I wrong in saying that, or was that your first reading? Because I would say that, that is my first reading. It's but it took me a while to figure out what them refers to, what the object of fed is, which is to say them. What's your other take? Well, I'd say that the most intuitive to me, and I could be totally wrong, is this idea of mocking connecting back to the sneer of cold command, so that he, the sculptor, is portraying Ramses or Ozymandias's mocking hand, which is maybe doesn't survive, but is interpreted through the portal of the mouth in the same way that the travelers is attributing all of these emotions to just one mouth, again, in my interpretation, and that that he's also that he has a heart that is somehow also feeding his subjects at the same time that he's mocking them. Subjects meaning, you know, now we get into this interesting idea of, you know, the subjects of a king and then the subject of uh, one's artwork. Yep. And I think that when I teach this poem, my students most often think that the hand that mocked them in the heart that fed, that's describing Ozymandias, describing the statue or describing real life Ozymandias and his, his characteristics, which the sculptor is looking at in trying to sculpt his subject. And that's all kind of going into it. But then of course, the second read is no wait, grammatically, this lines up with the sculptor not the subject of the sculpture. Yeah. But it could potentially go both ways or not. The grammar of this is so tricky. Yeah. It could also be that Ozymandias is mocking the sculptor too, the sculptor's attempts. Yes, yes. I mean, I think these are all readings which you can get 
mileage out of that work. The sculptor, well, those passions read, which yet survive. So the passions survive, stamped on these lifeless things. What do they survive? Survive actually is transitive in my reading. Survive has an object. They survive the hand. The passions survive the hand that mocked them. You know, on my reading, that's one of the interesting ironies of the poem, which is that on one level, it seems to be a, have a very simple moral about hubris and arrogance and how power is ephemeral. On the other hand, it is the, it's the passions that themselves seem to survive. And I, and I talked about that in terms of cultural influence and in terms of the influence of the work of art on the emotions of the audience, something that can affect their character, something that can lead to dis- dispose them to behave in certain ways. You know, if it's artistic influence, it could lead in the viewer of the sculpture to replicate a style, replicate something within that. But in general, right, it's just the way cultural influence works. It becomes part of our character. It makes us do things. So there's a real hegemony represented here right in ramses which is a cultural hegemony a cultural influence and that's what is immortal in in works of art as Mm. as well we can create a parallel between the artist's grandiosity and that of ramses and say here that neither of them really survive and and even the survival again of the object itself is not what's at issue it's a survival of not to be too nerdy about it but it's information that survives it's something out there in a way in the in the ether where i'm including information you know in information something encoded that can infect and spread it's like a virus and that includes passions it includes any sort of response we might have to a work of art or any artifact anything cultural anything any representation but anyway Going back to the grammar, yeah, that's what I see. I see survive as transitive and, and the passion surviving the hand that mocks them and the heart that feeds them. It sets up a kind of competition between artist and subject, which I think you kind of hinted at. Who is it that is made immortal, artist or the subject matter or something else or something beyond that, the cultural entity, the passion? Well, yeah, and you're making me think, therefore, of, I mean, what is the most, sort of the most straightforward part of the poem which is that we actually get the subject's words. We get the thought bubble, the speech bubble w- within the statue itself uh, inscribed on the pedestal, which is an interesting idea that the, what I think you're suggesting, which is that the inscription can provide sort of one reading, but that the way that he's portrayed can be betrayed by the artist. So we get the subject of, of this sculpture. In other words, Ozymandias wants to have his portrait in stone, right? And he wants to have this inscription very explicitly describing his the, the message that he wishes to get across. And yet that same message through the work of the sculptor can be betrayed. So there can be a clash, yeah. in other words, between the inscription and the actual depiction of the subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, after the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, which is a very difficult line, we get a very straightforward message, the message that Ozymandias wishes us to to take away from, let's, let's from the confrontation. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the ways in which that message has already been betrayed by the sculptor and then ultimately by what, what happens to the, the sculpture itself. So Shelley writes, and on the pedestal, these words appear... My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Okay, so we have 
the pedestal, which must be underneath these trunkless legs. And Ozymandias announces himself, he gives his, his name, calls himself King of Kings, which is, of course, um, in a different culture that would have a, a very different meaning, right? A very grandiose meaning here is imposed upon it because we know it's associated mm-hmm. with Christ to be the King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. So it seems as, an, uh, as though it's an invitation for those who think they're great, like maybe Napoleon coming to take his treasures from Egypt to say, okay, you you think you're great, but look at everything that I've done and um, despair of your paltry efforts. And among his works, presumably, is this statue, which does still remain. Let's give him some credit here. Right. That was it. (laughs) Right. And And we got the most important thing, the sneer. You know, if it is just the sneer that remains, it's, you know, it's like Cheshire Cat, right? Right. Give us the essence of it all, and and hasn't he succeeded then? Well, totally, and I, I mean, I would argue that the, the the fact that these items do remain is kind of an argument against what a lot of people take to be the whole message of the poem. Yeah, it does survive. Survival is the the word of the day here. <laughs> yeah, and the poem itself is a becomes its own sort of monument, you know, absolutely helping propagate the survival, and and art somehow does that. And then the question is, what survives? And I've been arguing that passion or some kind of correlate of that is is really, really the kind of viral or the bit of DNA that really does survive whatever Mm -hmm. happens to any particular media. Yeah. The the poem is a reflection on whether art can make anything immortal, even if not a person, even if not an artist, even if not a, a particular thing that's represented something. I love the line, look on my work, see mighty and despair. Mm-hmm. which it's got to be a grandiose moment that every artist has experienced, right? It's an agonistic endeavor. It's a competitive endeavor. You're engaged in a dialogue with previous artists in an attempt to take up their influence, which could be a kind of subjection, right? If you're not careful and you become entirely derivative, then you don't, you don't transcend it, but also can be an important influence that can lead to a kind of artistic Freedom, which I think is part of the goal, right? Real creativity, some real kind of freedom that can't be unmoored from the past and from tradition, but in some sense must transcend it. I think it's an, it's an emotion that's appealing to artists, but it has to be gotten over in some way. The sort of the, the grandiose, look how powerful I am, that narcissistic moment. That's what's fragile and that's what could lead to something that truly is ephemeral in every sense, which doesn't have any cultural staying power. What's so delicious about this too is that the you know the very origin of this poem is an artistic competition. Right, right? exactly. So he's he's rubbing poor Horace's nose in it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Horace, destined not to be famous with a name like that. If if he had changed it to Ozymandias, then maybe. Is the artist trying to be a dictator to subject the audience, or or do they have to do something? else they have to move out of that moment i think you're also making me think of the fact that so often with this ancient statuary we we don't get the name of the uh of the sculptor ever you know we we have no mm. idea who the sculptor is we know of course who the rulers are that they depict and obviously here we got a, a direct inscription but we we get this nameless influence at the same time of the sculptor handed down as someone who's whose name we don't know, but who has stamped his creations with his own artistic gifts. It's the, the, the anonymity of it is interesting to me. 
Yeah. If it's a contest between the sculptor and Ozymandias, neither actually win. It's passions that win. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the hand that mocks doesn't survive. The heart that inspired them doesn't survive. A third thing is the only survivor in this battle. And the same thing for Smith and for, for Shelley. Mm-hmm. In a way, the artist is a medium, right? And they're inspired. And the, the better an artist is, and the more they're, the, they're operating at their optimum, the less credit they ought to get, right? Because it's right. just the gods moving through them. Sure. So the better you are, you know, the less credit you get as an artist. So, yeah. Right. The more that mediating factor disappears. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get the, the final three lines. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So there's nothing, nothing around this statue. And I love colossal wreck. I, I love the idea that, that this is, the statue is a vessel, again, mm. c- carrying its message, even though it's trunkless, right? The idea that it's like a shipwreck in the middle of the sea yeah. of the, the desert. Yeah. Is it the desert that has caused an empire to disappear or... Is it the artistic monument that creates the desert in some sense because it's so powerful, because it's like a nuclear blast and everything around it is sort of obliterated in a way if it's if it's truly great? I know that's a stretch, but that's hmm. the that's the sort of thing I, I think about at the very end is if you reverse the causality and you make this fractured visage, this sort of nuclear bomb that has gone off and produced the post-apocalyptic wasteland around it. I like that. Yeah. I mean, the desert is still in the process of digesting the statue, right? The statue is, is half sunk. But I, I like that, uh, that alternate reading. Obliteration capability in art is, has interesting yeah. <laughs> complications too. And then if it's a wreck, if it's remnants of a vessel or a, a ship, it's not something that is fully sunk, right? So in some sense, it can still navigate this sandy, desolate, world or even this you know this nothingness nothing beside remains ramses and is trying to call our attention to all the great works that he has done right so the, which really are other people's works the, the works of slaves the works of the works of the sculptor and they are meant to be intimidating they're meant to induce despair despite the fact that they are where they do survive they're just the sorts of things that are going to be exploited and subjected and put into museums and enjoyed so subjected to whatever extent the audience subjects something a work of art that they enjoy all that stuff but if we are the competitive artist it's enough that one beautiful thing survive to to leave us in a state of desolation Mm. i don't know where i'm going with that but the other thing i wanted to mention was you know your focus on this word wreck it makes me wonder to the extent to which you can see any work of art as a wreck in the sense of hmm. an abandoned ship. Because I'm thinking in terms of this DNA or RNA analogy, I think of the capsid to a virus. It's sort of in this kind of protein shell. And it's not activated except when it gets into a body and it can sort of hijack the living processes of a body and make the cell produce that DNA to exert its influence. Mm-hmm. And naturally in the same way right the, the aesthetic object is not activated and except in relation to the audience except in relation to acts of interpretation so it's kind of freeze-dried until then and you have to add 
interpretive water to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it comes alive. So it lives in, it can be alive in us, but by itself, it's always this wreck huh. that navigates, so to speak, in the sense it doesn't, doesn't really move, doesn't do anything in, in that kind of sandy realm of nothingness. And the, um, the artist has to confront the blank page, the realm of, of nothingness in order to put something there. It's a courageous act. It's an anxiety producing act. And then the audience has to be able to retrieve it from nothingness. So you're, you're suggesting that pre and post traveler, this is just the, the tree falling in the woods and not making a sound because the, the person needs to hear the sound. In, in other words, the, the sound phenomenon is something that only the listener can partake of. So the, yeah. the traveler is, is sort of activating it, but then otherwise, if he hadn't come across it, it would still just be a wreck. And the, the power ultimately belongs to the, the audience, you know? Right. You're also making me think that there's something wrecked, as, as I think we've already been talking about, in, in any attempt at representation. There's always going to be something fragmented about any representation because it's not the genuine article, you know? It's not the real guy. Yep. So there's always, I think, something missing there and here that fragmenting of representation is, is literalized and the, the missing parts of the body are made literal in the fact that only the bottom half or the, the full shattered face and these two legs are what remain. Yeah. So we'll continue our conversation about this in the postscript. And I'm also going to read Horace Smith's effort at producing an Ozymandias poem, which is kind of hilarious at times. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we, we might just make a quick reference to Plath's The Colossus, right? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. To get ad-free episodes and episodes of our after show, Postscript, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Also, this podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other Airwave shows like Food with former New York Times food journalist and best-selling author Mark Bittman and Movie Therapy in which Siskel and Ebert meets Dear Abby. That's airwavemedia.com. Mm-hmm.